we're, we're here with uh, Sam Castor and Linda Cherry. We're so excited to be here today. We get to talk about two of my favorite prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and his transition and, and handing of the mantle to Elisha. And Linda, I know you have some beautiful insights on this, and I'm so excited to have a discussion about Elijah and uh, Elisha today. Thanks for being here with me. I'm really looking forward to it, Sam. Thank you for inviting me. Um, my pleasure. I wouldn't. I, I would never ever want to do any of these uh, without you because you just bring so much uh, good vision and insight to these things. And you and I were at the beginning. We're talking about how there's a, a strong vision, theme of vision of seeing things, and I want to touch on that today. And I also want to just give a little bit of background about why we're talking about Elisha as we transition to Second Kings and the history of Elijah and how Elijah ended up handing off the priesthood authority to Elisha and how that worked and what that meant. And then all the miracles that follow as Elisha gets a double portion of the spirit that Elijah had with his miracles. And so just, just as a little bit of a background, it's interesting if you, as we get into second Kings two, there's this awareness that Elijah is about to be translated and you can see it over and over again, that there's this group called the school of the prophets and there's Elijah acting as the lead prophet. And then there's Elisha, who is his assistant prophet. And Elisha keeps getting told over and over again, hey, do you know that Elijah is about to be translated? So there's clearly this tradition of translation, this idea that if people live righteously enough, or once they finish their course here on earth, they're caught up to heaven. This theme is something that is evidenced all throughout this this set of scriptures, this idea of miraculous connection with God and being elevated up. But before all this happens, there's this exchange, if if we can just flash back a little bit to 1 Kings. In 1 Kings, there's an exchange between Elijah and Elisha. And it's interesting because it talks about how Elijah is lamenting. He's up on the mountain, and many of us have heard this story. He's up on the mountain communing with the Lord, trying to understand how to help Israel repent. They're very wicked. They're going off in the ways of Baal, which, as you had noted on an earlier lesson, I didn't know this, Baal means uh, husband in, uh, in, in a different language, right? So this idea that they're trying to marry themselves to a different god. And Elijah has the, the, an earthquake and a fire and a wind come, and he knows that the Lord isn't in any of those. And then a still, small voice comes and speaks to Elijah. And, and he is told by the Lord, that Elijah will anoint the king of, um, I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> Do you want to help me out? The king of Syria. Thank the you. King, the king of Israel. And then the prophet who will follow him, who will be Elisha. Right, right. It's really fascinating. And so there's this exchange where, it, because it, Syria is clearly the enemy of Israel at the time. And the, and the people are very wicked. They've fallen away. And <clears throat> we end up having this exchange where the Lord says, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to help uh, clean out the wicked. And it's going to happen with the king of Syria, almost as like a, a prick against the, the back of the hills of the, of the kingdoms of the Jews and Israel and Ephraim. And I'm also going to have your, your uh, student prophet, Elisha, help clean up those that aren't cleaned up by the king of Syria and by um, the, the wickedness that it brings down all this judgment and destruction on the people. And so you end up seeing all these famines and terrible things uh, happen as this proceeds. But after Elijah has this experience, he descends and he's looking for uh, a student prophet and he sees Elisha. And it's, I love the story here because it, it shows how, how enthusiastic Elisha is. Elijah uh, casts his mantle on Elijah 
And Elisha is actually in a field plowing the field. And he immediately jumps up and leaves his, his plow in the field and goes and joins Elijah and says, I'm going to go serve the Lord. And he asked permission after leaving so hastily, he asked permission to go back and kiss his mother and father goodbye, <laughs> which is wonderful. Just shows you how excited he was to serve the Lord. And then it's beautiful. He slaughters the, the, the oxen that were plowing the field and gives the food to feed the poor. So this just gives you an indication of the heart of Elisha at this early stage of his uh, prophetic ministry. He's caring for those around him. He's willing to sacrifice everything but he still loves and still honors his parents. He still wants to be connected to the people. He still wants to serve them and love them. What do you think about that? Well, I think it, first of all, had to be such a comfort to Elijah who felt so lonely. Mm-hmm. When you think about Elijah by the brook where the ravens are feeding him for years. And then after the trial with the priests of Baal and mm-hmm. Elijah is up on the mountain and he's just like, it's, he's just overcome. It's just too much for him. And that sense of terrible loneliness that he has felt when he tells the Lord, I'm the only one left who believes in you. And yeah. um, then for the Lord to, to remind him about Elisha and for Elijah that to come down from that experience of feeling so alone and be able to finish the rest of his mission with Elisha at his side and then to realize how dedicated Elisha is. And in fact, uh, one of the commentaries in the Old Testament student manual made the point that Elisha has 12 oxen, which indicates that they're a wealthy family, which is pretty remarkable in that period of time, because what a great point during this period, if we remember that under Elijah, when Elijah sealed the heavens, uh, they had been in a period of famine. And in fact, uh, they had been under attack from the countries to the north. And I'll just remind everyone that at this time, that that nation we're calling Israel is no longer the 12 tribes of Israel. What's mm-hmm. being referred to as Israel here is the 10 tribes in the northern kingdom. And they have their own king. And at this time, it's Ahab with his queen Jezebel who is the daughter of the priest of Baal. And oh, wicked Jezebel, right? Yeah, they have made Baal worship the official religion of Israel, which is just quite important for us in understanding why the Lord has removed his hand of protection. Down in Jerusalem, uh, they are being ruled by the king of Judah there. Um, mm. So up here in the northern, north of Israel, all of the armies are constantly kind of going back and forth through that land, whether it's Egypt coming up to fight against um, armies that are to the north or vice versa. They're always always going through Israel. And so this northern kingdom, especially bordering with Syria, they've just been hit over and over again. So the fact that Elisha and his family have 12 oxen and they're sowing in a field um, is a really interesting aspect. So Elisha's leaving more than his parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really showing us that he's just truly dedicating everything he has, consecrating himself to God. So I see it for both of these prophets' standpoint of what a joy, what a comfort it must have been to Elijah. And first of all, Elijah knows his mission is now. He's going to get to go home pretty soon, yeah. um, home to the Lord. And then to have this comfort of knowing that Elisha is fully in it, fully committed uh, to serving in his stead and will go for it in this really tough uh, commission that Elisha has. So I love it. I do too. But and even though it's difficult, he's excited. He's willing to see how the Lord will 
make manifest his wonders and do do beautiful things with the house of Israel and, and help them return. And um, I think he has a similar spirit that Elijah has. Elisha wants to help people return to the Lord. He wants to help people recognize who's been the the the, the majesty and the benefactor and the, the the beauty, all the blessings, the source of all the blessings that the, the house of Israel is able to enjoy. And so as we jump from 1 Kings 19, where that exchange happens and Elisha is called, um, and they they join together in serving the Lord. Um, it's important, I think, at this point to note just that Elijah doesn't necessarily come from the school of the prophets or or the the sons of the prophets as they're referred to. And we don't know a lot, um, but there is there is a nice little Bible dictionary reference in, in our set of scriptures that talks about who these sons of the prophets are, and it makes an allusion to the school of the prophets. And it seems like there's at least three different types of people that are in this religious institution known as the sons of the prophets. And this, this all harkens back to this idea in numbers when Moses says, I wish everybody was a prophet, right? He, he, he has this experience where he, um, the Israelites tell him, Hey, there's people prophesying over here. And he's like, are you jealous for me? I wish everybody was a prophet. <laughs> so there's this grand invitation for everybody to join in this idea of becoming a prophet or a prophetess, male and female, just like Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, was a prophetess. Um, but in uh, Numbers, we get this indication, hey, let's let everybody in. And then we have this exchange with this idea of the school of the prophets, where they're con- consistently communicating with Elijah and Elijah. And the three different types of people in this school of the prophets are those seeking instruction, um, like in the School of Prophets with Joseph Smith, where they were learning languages, they were learning the scriptures, they were trying to commune with the Lord. There were also teachers, pe- people who were being instructed in the ways of the, of the gospel and the ways of the Lord so that they could teach other people and, and spread his his word and um, act as priests or officiators or instructors in the gospel. And then it's really important, I think, to highlight that there's some wonderful talks about these sets of scriptures that highlight that anyone who lived worthily who was trying to be filled with the spirit could be considered a prophet. And in the Bible dictionary, it actually says there's a lot of prophets who aren't of the school of the prophets who end up becoming prophets. Right. And it's anybody who's willing to try and seek the spirit of the Lord and try and commune with him and receive revelation and see things as they really are in, in connection with the Lord. What do you think about this? Well, I think it's really important too, that we do see this group of people in a corrupt land where people had lost the sense of who God really was, and they were worshiping many gods. So to me, it's really encouraging that no matter where we live, and no matter what the political conditions that as long as we're seeking the truth, the Lord will provide that environment and that opportunity for us to be able to taught be taught the truth. And, and I love that, that we're never really left alone, even though as I said earlier, Elijah at one point felt like he was really alone, but also no matter what our political conditions. So right now we have to believe that, for example, in both the Ukraine and Russia, mm-hmm. there are wonderful people who are seeking for Zion and seeking for the goodness of all mankind and are seeking for the truth of the Lord. And they're, they are joined together and they're reaching out to others. And, you know, we want to pray in their behalf too. So it, I think, you know, the big lesson for me is we aren't ever alone. Uh, I trying to remember who it was that said in times of trial, look for the helpers, look mm. for the people who are out helping and, and align yourselves with them. And so it's really nice to know we had this group of people for in Elijah and Elisha's day that 
were seeking the truth and wanted to know what God would have them do. Absolutely. And it's, and some of the miracles that Elisha performs, we'll get to come from this school of the prophets where there are people that are seeking the Lord and Elisha's heart is softened towards them and, you know, makes miracles happen. And I love that you bring up Ukraine. You know, anytime we do one of these discussions, Linda, my prayer is always, and I know you feel the same way. My, it's always that we'll be able to help point people to Jesus Christ, that he's the healer. He's the the restorer. He's the the leader of all that is right and good. And he, you know, as we, as we seek to follow him, we can join him as saviors on Mount Zion and help bring about miracles in his name and draw others closer to him. And so as we talk about this, I think Elisha is a really good example of how to do that. He's someone who's saying, I don't care what's happening in the world. In fact, when things get crazy, it's an opportunity to see the Lord's mercy. It's an opportunity to see that everything is a gift and that he's going to work the darkness into light. He's going to change these painful experiences into blessing and help us come closer to him if we'll receive it from him. And so, you know, I, I love that you bring up Ukrainians. It always, it still breaks my heart every time I see things in the news. And yet the Ukrainians are, are trying to have fun where they're, they're um, poking fun at what the, their life has become, <laughs> you know, and that good natured humor, I think is also part of part of the spirit of the Lord that helps us work through these difficult times. So we have this experience where uh, Elisha is told over and over again in Second Kings 2, hey, by the school of these prophets, hey, you know your, your master's about to be translated, right? <laughs> and he's like, hold your peace. It's going to be fine. And he goes from place to place to place, and they keep telling him this. And then finally, Elijah comes to him and says, yeah, I'm about to be translated. What is it that you want? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. What does Elijah say in response to that? He seems like he's a little dis- a little concerned about Elisha's desire for a double portion, and that's a hard thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, he prophesies that if if Elisha is able to see Elijah translated up into heaven, that he'll receive a double portion of the Spirit. What do you think about that, Landa? Well, here we have that first introduction that we're going to see throughout this scripture block of those who have eyes to see mm-hmm. and the ability to have spiritual vision. And so the interesting thing is that Elijah, uh, Elisha apparently is the only one who can actually see Elijah taken up. And so then he mm-hmm. does receive this acknowledgement. Yes, you will get this double portion and you are. Imagine Elisha's nervousness. Everyone had to be so in awe of Elijah after the contest with the priests of Baal oh, and what had happened there. Sure. And Elisha you know, has got a great mission in front of him and he's got to be pretty anxious about losing Elijah's stewardship over him and and counsel over him and so to ask i I want to have twice as much as you because i'm i'm twice as weak as you is probably what he's thinking and so um to be able to have this ability to have his eyes open to have that spiritual vision and he's going to have that as a gift throughout his ministry Mm -hmm. the ability to see beyond what is right in front of the face to, to see beyond the temporal and to see the armies of heaven and to um, see into heaven, have that veil lifted. And that had to be a great comfort to him. But I do love the beautiful relationship between these two prophets. Again, I think both of them must have been really comforted. I can't help but think that Elijah as well, you know, I think he was relieved to be going home, as I said earlier, but he also has to be relieved that someone is actually going to be really committed to carrying on, you know, that sense that the one person can make such a difference, but, and that he, he is now also reassured Elijah, that Elisha won't give up 
won't be yeah. overwhelmed and give up. Absolutely. And it, back to that prophecy in first Kings, he, he's probably grateful. The Lord is going to prevail and he's going to have the king of Israel and the king of Syria and Elijah, Elisha. They're all going to cleanse the land of the wicked that have been taking them down the path of Baal. Mm-hmm. And so that, and I, and I love that you bring up vision, you know, uh, Enoch has this awesome experience that we talked about at the beginning of the year where he's able to see things as they really are. And this seems to be a, a, not only a common theme of the prophets, but it's the invitation to all of us to progress from feeling the Lord in our lives to, as Pre- President Nelson has, has been inviting us to hear the Lord and eventually see him, to see his connection to us and undergo this this personal restoration where we start to wake up. There's this really great quote by Elder Joseph uh, Fielding Smith uh, back when he was an elder, not, not the prophet yet, where he says, the spirit of God speaking to the spirit of man has power to impart truth. Through the Holy Ghost, the truth is woven into the very fiber and sinews of the body so that it cannot be forgotten. And he, he says, with our confirmation as church members, the door is open for us to pursue this heavenly endowment. Speaking of the endowment of Elisha, this should be an urgent and lifelong quest that we're all invited to follow in the steps of the school of the prophets or of the, of the, of the prophets that we're seeking the Lord. We all have an opportunity to, to receive this double portion of the spirit or triple portion of the spirit. It's all about how quickly we're willing to receive it and, and bear it up. Like Joseph Smith says, as quickly as we're willing to incorporate the truths that we receive from the Lord into our lives, the more he'll give us. And so if we want to see as things are, you know, see things as they really are, and see as we are seen by the Lord, we all have that invitation. Nobody is forbidden from receiving that light and that truth and that vision. And Elisha is the most quick to do it, <laughs> as evidenced by these chapters. So um, Wilfred Woodruff also has, uh, There's, uh, by the way, and this is just a quick plug again, I've mentioned this before, there's a terrific tool that was built by BYU. Um, a bunch of professors there called the Citation Index. And I'll throw a picture of it up on the screen, but you can see on the citation index, um, any, any talk that's ever been given about these sets of scriptures, Wilfred Woodruff gave a talk where he actually says, he, he laments that he felt like at the, during his time that they, the, the saints were at a time similar to the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And he was very worried that uh, there were no prophets and he was concerned that among the general people, like there was no school of the prophets or there was no group of prophets like we're talking about here with Elisha. And he says, he looks around and he laments. He says, oh, where are the sons of the prophets, apostles and fathers in Zion preparing in these last days to rise up and bear off this kingdom when we are on the other side of the veil? So it's this very similar concern, like you just mentioned, with Elijah wanting to hand off the baton to Elisha. And then he says, but I thank God that I can find it is now something like it was in the days of Elijah when the prophet said, referring to the followers of Baal, they have killed thy prophets and pulled down thine altars and I I alone am left. And the Lord said, oh no, I have 7,000 men in Israel who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And, and he goes on to discuss, I have looked around in the congregations and I see there are righteous men like these 7,000 men. I think it's important for us to maintain that hope that there are thousands of righteous followers of Christ, if not millions on the earth today that want to build Zion, that are doing everything they can to hear the voice of the Lord. And one day we'll see the Lord that are trying to build up his kingdom and prepare it so that it, it can be lifted up to him when he returns again. And so that energy is not something that was just unique to the days of Elijah. 
it happened in Wilford Woodruff's day. And I'm sure it's happening that, that fear that there aren't, you know, where are the righteous, I think is happening a little bit today as well, but that's the invitation for the righteous to step in and mount up the light that the Lord gives them in opposition to the darkness that Satan's trying to create on the earth. It's just, it's the matching, right? It's the, it's the, um, the answer to the darkness is the righteousness of the hearts of those that have that calling. And so I, I just hope we all remain hopeful for that, Linda. I hope we all keep looking for that and keep trying to be that ourselves. Any thoughts on that? And recognize the call, as you said, that to recognize that call and recognize that invitation, because a lot of times we think that we are so inadequate or that we're mm-hmm. too small, or we think so um, highly of others that we think could do the job so much better than we can. But I think that's one of the beautiful things about the stories here is that we're talking about ordinary people who do receive that call and step up. And then the Lord magnifies them and gives them extraordinary abilities to be able to perform his work. Amen. I love that. And it's all back to numbers, uh, you know, numbers chapter 11, verse 29, where Moses says, would to God that all the people were prophets and prophetesses. So there's this, there's this invitation. And so this tradition of receiving the Lord of communing with him, of being, quickened by his spirit and receiving his light and enjoying his, his holy fire, celestial fire of Shekinah um, being, you know, edified by him is something that has existed all um, throughout the, the Israelite history since Moses. And there's a pinnacle here with uh, Elijah being lifted to heaven. And so he, there is a chariot of fire that comes down, picks up Elijah and carries him to heaven. And Elisha sees it. And one of um, a, a piece of clothing, a mantle or a, a, a piece of fabric off of Elijah's shoulders falls. Elisha sees that and goes and grabs it and, and retrieves that. And that becomes this idea of the mantle that we talk about in the church. This idea that there is a prophetic mantle or a calling mantle that passes from one leader to the next. That's really just the quickening of the spirit that comes from followers of the Lord that are trying to serve in his name, that are trying to, to bear up his kingdom here on the earth and further the progress of the church. One thing I like about this story is that those sons of the prophet recognize that mantle on Elisha. Do. And um, one thing that I've thought about a lot as I've looked at this, this um, story is I wonder how well we're helping to train our children to recognize that mantle mm-hmm. more and more lately as I'm attending, say, a gospel doctrine class or even a sacrament talk. I'm hearing people refer to Bednar or Uchtdorf without the elder, oh, the title. without the title in front. And I, I fear that this sense of um, that we're all equal might be um, uh, dimming our understanding mm. of someone's right to that mantle of leadership. And I think we've all had the experience of when we've known, let's say, uh, someone who's newly called to be a bishop is someone who's been our friend for a long time. And we can see, we can literally see the mantle, we can see the change. I think it's really important to point that out to our children and help them to recognize that too, so that our children can learn to have respect for that mantle of authority. What a great point. You know, it's funny when I was in college, I, I love that you bring that up. I had a best, one of my best friends, um, one of the best men at my wedding. Um, he got called as elders quorum president. And um, I felt this yearning in my heart to pray for him to be sustained in that calling. And, you know, we're all invited to honor that, that title. We're all invited to see that distinction and not have our vision dimmed when we're asked to sustain the prophets and the leaders in our church. Well, I had this experience where I prayed and prayed and prayed one night for him. 
my friend, that he would be sustained, that he would have the support that he needed, that he'd be able to have revelation and know how to bless the members of the ward. And about a week later, I got called to be one of his counselors. <laughs> I think it's because the Lord sees our willingness to sustain. And he, he, he's like, Hey, if you're, if you hear that, you know, if you have the, the desire to serve, like it says in Doctrine and Covenants section four, then you're called to the work. As soon as we sustain, as soon as we engage our hearts in support of the prophet, we'll be able to be caught up into this, this idea of the sons of the prophets. We can become sons and daughters of the prophet by sustaining him. By I agree. I love that. And so we've talked about the spiritual vision of being able to see that mantle for a moment. I do want to talk about the actual clothing. Please. Because because wearing that clothing was important. And in fact, it comes up again with John the Baptist, because Mm -hmm. they describe John the Baptist as wearing this hairy garment. Mm -hmm. Elijah is described as wearing this hairy garment, which is undoubtedly the actual piece of clothing that is now passed on to Elisha. John the Baptist wearing that garment gets everyone's attention, because they all kind of recognize that they've been told this special garment represents a prophet and they had not had a prophet for hundreds of years when John the Baptist shows up. So the literal piece of clothing got everyone's attention that hopefully then opened their spiritual eyes to be able to recognize the mantle of authority. But I I was thinking about, we are also invited to wear special clothing that not only um, is a blessing to us and a shield to us, but it's also a visible sign of priesthood Mm -hmm. and a visible sign of authority. And so I think that, uh, you know, this being able to see on different levels here to actually see the physical clothing and then to spiritually see and recognize that there is some power and authority and blessing that can come by wearing that clothing. Well, and this is the theme, uh, Heber C. Kimball gives a talk about this and it's something that um, I I don't want to deep dive too deeply into because I, I think we could talk about it for a very long time, but there is something about, uh, in addition to receiving spiritual power from God in our temples and our bodies, there's something about this idea that there are certain objects, there are certain things that the Lord quickens or that he um, provides power to. And you see it with the mantle, you see it with the Leahona, you see it with the Ark of the Covenant. Like we talked about this last time we talked, you see it with all these different, uh, Moses' staff, you see it with um, Elisha's staff that he um, will get to in a little bit. There's, there's these examples of these moments where the Lord says, I'm going to have this object be imbued with power and people are going to reverence it. And I think that's one of the reasons why when John the Baptist shows up on the scene, the Israelites are like, Oh, this is something special. They, they all recognize there are certain holy artifacts and Hebrew C. Kimball talks about this and uh, modern day uh, spiritual artifacts. I have a great, uh, great, great, great grandpa, John Lowe Butler, who had a cloak that was blessed by Joseph Smith that, that was, he was told this will heal people. And I, um, it's, it's wonderful. This, this idea that not only can we have our bodies quickened, but we can also have objects that become sanctified and help carry forth the Lord's work. As long as the focus is on the Lord, right? As long as it's not the power of the cloak, it's not the power of the mantle or the staff. It's the power of Christ. It's the power of faith in Christ, but there, there is this. And so Elijah takes the mantle and he's, he's you know, now over on the Jericho side of the river of Jordan. He takes the mantle and he touches the river Jordan to cross back to the school of the prophets. And they see him part the river, which is, you know, a divine manifestation of authority, similar to what happened with Moses and to what happened with subsequent prophets all the way down till we get to Elisha. 
he crosses the river and they say, yeah, you, you, they recognize the mantle. They say, you clearly have received um, the power of God um, after Elijah has been taken up in the chariot of fire. And um, by the way, we want to go find Elisha or Elijah because we're concerned where he went. Now, this is interesting. It seems like the, the, these prophets have seen Elijah carried by the spirit to other locations because they're not, this is my interpretation. Their natural conclusion is, hey, Elijah is just somewhere else. Let's go find him. And Elisha's like, no, he's gone, you guys. And it's funny because they were telling him, hey, he's going to be carried up into heaven, but they still don't want him to be gone, right? They still want to find him. So they finally press upon Elisha and Elisha relents and he says, okay, you can go send a search party to try and find Elijah. Maybe he, because you think maybe he's on a mountain somewhere. He's been carried to a distant country and they search for several days, can't find him. They come back and they say, okay, fine. You're right. (laughs) He's gone. He's up in heaven, right? It's great. What's interesting though, Linda, is that this idea of being carried about by the spirit or being caught up into heaven. I, I think one of the reasons they, they thought this is because there is a tradition um, that's been uh, academically chronicled by a, a professor named David Larson. He has a great talk on it. You can look up the idea of communal translation by David Larson. Um, he has a, a wonderful paper on it where he, t- that he presented at BYU where he talks about how um, the, the, the Jews and the, the Israelites had this tradition of communal translation where they would, where they would say, Hey, it's our purpose to try and commune with the Lord and actually be carried up into heaven. And there are many instances where many people are many patriarchs and matriarchs are caught up into heaven, not just Enoch and Melchizedek, but there's also this idea that they come back. And so, uh, and they come back and commune with the people and try and prepare the people to go back up. And they have songs that they sing to try and help people be translated. And he talks about how, um, and, and he, I found other academic research that suggests that the Hebrew, the book of Hebrews was sung to help prepare people to enter the presence of the Lord. So there's this idea of if we live worthy enough, we can enter his presence and come closer to him. And I, I think it's, that's probably one of the reasons why they thought he would come back. They kind of hoped that he would descend back down and bring some more light and wisdom with him. Well, also think about that when after the, the contest with the priest of Baal and Jezebel says, I'm going to kill Elijah. Yeah. Elijah outran, outran the chariots. And then he goes up to Mount Sinai. So if you were just only looking with your temporal eyes, you might think that Elijah had been carried up to the mountain then, and they saw him come back, right? So they, they'd they had these experiences, as you said, undoubtedly, at least even just that one, right. where Elijah looks like he's miraculously carried away. And in fact, we do know an angel ministered to him during that trip. Um, and then he comes back. So they're, they're wanting to make sure with their temporal uh, minds that yeah. Yeah, this time he's not coming back. He's not coming back. And so Elisha has this um, double portion of the spirit. And we're now going to get into several of his miracles. Um, and again, just to, to reiterate, this is an invitation for all of us to be able to receive that quickening, that portion of the spirit that brings about miracles um, as, as, that comes from faith. You know, there's, there's so many miracles that happen through faith. And then also Elisha obviously has the priesthood authority to be, to be the prophetic leader on the earth at this time. And we all can be like him. We can all be quickened like him as quickly as we're willing to receive it. That's what Joseph Smith assures us. So here's some of his miracles, right? So we get to second Kings two and there's this tradition of translation. And then after the mantle, Elijah parts the river Jordan, he comes across and then he is invited in second Kings two nineteen 19 through 22. He comes back to the prophets and they say, Hey, we really like where we're living but the water over here is rancid. It's, it's broken water. 
Uh, by the way, incidentally, I don't know if you know this, but the word Parowan in Utah, the little town of Parowan, means uh, toxic water or, or death water, according oh, to no. the <laughs> Hebrew, oh, yeah, according to Native American tradition. So this idea of death water is probably what they're they're referring to. It's something that if you drink it, it's going to make you poison, you know, poisoned or disturb your your health. And so he he comes to them and he says, "Hey, let's perform a miracle. Let's take a little bit of um, uh, of." If I remember correctly, he takes some salt. Yeah, some salt and says, again, quick and matter, something that signifies a miracle. And they put it in the water and it becomes pure, right? So the first miracle he performs is, I think, beautifully symbolic. It's living water. It brings living water to the prophets. What do you think about that? Well, I agree. I think we're going to see a lot of foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and Mm -hmm. his mission in Elisha's uh, miracles here. Um, quite a few. So yeah, I love this one. And, you know, normally we think, well, salt does have healing agents, but typically, um, anciently, when one army went against another, and they wanted to conquer the land, what they did to destroy their land is they put salt on their land. Right, right. That's so what the funny. Romans did. It's what the Romans did in Carthage, right? They, they, they literally raised the town by plowing salt in the fields so people couldn't live there again. You're right. That's, that's yeah. a great point. So we have this sort of dual thing with the, with the salt here. Yeah, I think there's also duality in the fact that the first miracle is healing, healing water, living water. And then the next miracle is one of my favorite ones is a bald man. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's interesting. I've studied this. I've, I've written a little blog post on the doctrine of hair. And that this idea of hair is, is something that I think we don't really fully understand. But there are these 42 youth that and not, not children, the, the Greek translation makes it very clear. These are, these are teenagers that um, know better and they come and they make fun of Elisha. Now he's just had this prophetic manifestation, this miraculous manifestation of his power. He's divided the river Jordan. He's healed this water. And then these youth come to him and say, Hey, you should go back up on the mountain, bald man. Cause, and what they're really saying is you don't have any authority because hair or a mantle on a head, which is where one of the, that's probably where he would have worn the mantle, not just on his shoulders, is the, those that crown idea comes from this idea of mantle. And you see it all throughout. You see it with the pharaohs. You see it with the magistrates in England, where they wear these these wigs when they sit in judgment. They have a uh, this fake wig on their head. You see it with uh, all throughout these other kingdoms where people wear crowns. This this idea of long hair. The Native Americans think long hair actually also allows you to commune with the spirit world. All of this is this idea of authority. And so when they say, hey, thou bald man, they're saying, you don't have any authority. You can't do anything. And so he sicks a, a, a couple of bears on him and the bears go kill these 42 kids. <laughs> these well, 42 and actually, kids. you know, there's a number of commentators who believe that those youth, and by the way, it does also say in the footnote uh, that, they, that they were youth, young, young yes. men. Yes. Um, there's a number of commentators who think that these guys were kind of up to no good and that they had probably been in the forest messing with the bears' cubs. And so that this she-bear was angry and after them anyway. Mm. Well, I, I mean, and I, I think that gives, I think that gives Elisha a pat. I, and that, that'd be possible, but I, I think it's important that there's a duality here, like you mentioned. He brings living water, and then he also has the power over death. True, true. <laughs> yeah. It's a hard story, Sam. It's a really it is. A, it, is. it is a hard story, but I, you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's ev- evidence. I mean, we're dealing with a people where, um, if you're not willing to respect the authority of God, if you're not willing to respect um, His power, 
he's going to demonstrate this. Their, their, heart, their hearts are pretty hard at this time. They've been following after Baal for a long time. And Elisha's there to clean out the wicked. And so I, as a bald man, I think it's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but it's but to show the duality of, of life bringing water and also of death, just like how the Savior cursed the fig tree when he was in, um, you know, right before his before his own um, ascent to heaven. And, and the, the apostles know that the fig tree died. And incidentally, sorry, I, I can't bring that up without mentioning. I don't know if people know this as well, but the fig tree is, is an interesting symbol there as well. And, and if there's, again, a corollary with Christ. Fig trees in this part of the world are different than normal fruit trees, incidentally. Remember, Christ goes up to that fig tree looking for fruit because he sees that the fig tree is covered in leaves. And fig trees are different than normal uh, fruit trees. Most fruit trees will have leaves, then fruit. Fig trees have fruit first and then leaves. And so if there's leaves on a fig tree, there's fruit on that fig tree unless it's a corrupt fig tree, unless it's been broken somehow or and it's not following the the order of its creation. And so for the Lord to curse the fig tree as a symbol of Israel, where they're acting like they have fruit. And similarly here for Elijah to destroy these youth who are, are pretending like they have authority or that they have some uh, greater power than God. I, the similarities are really powerful to me. He's there to clean house. Again, that spiritual vision. And yeah. I, you know, I will accede to your point, Sam, even though it's a hard story. I think you're right because <laughs> The point is, is if they're not following the prophet, they are spiritually dead. Right. And, and so uh, this power that he has over life and death was something that they had uh, recognized in Elijah. And so it's very important that they do recognize that as well in Elisha. I agree. I agree. I, just one other point on this too, Linda. I do, we've, societally, we've gone through this progression of, and it's beautiful, where people want to be very gentle right now in our day. I think we're getting to that place again. People want to be gentle with each other. There's this demand that people be not offend each other. There's this demand that people, um, you know, uh, kowtow to whatever the personal beliefs are of individuals. And I think we're getting to a place where it's similar to back then where the Lord is saying, I need, I need my prophets to stand up and be prophets. I need, I need men to be men and women to be women and say, this is how we're going to protect the righteousness of the Lord, the order of heaven. This is how we're going to stand up. And some of that includes destruction. Some of that includes, no, you can't do that. And here's the consequence. And so you see that here in this story, but then there's all this abundant mercy and generosity and blessing that comes in all these miracles after Elijah. And so some of the next miracles highlight that whenever the Lord is destroying, it's just like a a plow being brought through the, through the land to, to till the ground so that he can plant. He's always bringing more fruit. He's always trying to help cultivate our hearts so we can receive more from him. And I think we're going to see through this story and then the Shunammite woman that yeah. um, that the Lord does expect more of those who are supposedly under covenant to him. In Absolutely. other words, these 42 youth were Israelites and um, should have known better. Whereas we see incredible mercy shown to the Gentile Shunammite woman. Yes. And, and, and so and back the, to your first point, whoever's yeah. willing to listen. Yes. Yes. And the Syrians, there's so much. So, I mean, with Naaman, right. There's so many blessings that come. So we'll show a map uh, to highlight your different kingdoms here. We'll, we'll put a map up that just talks about the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. So you have the, the North and the South kingdoms, and then you have the kingdom of Ammon and the kingdom of Moab. 
and then also the kingdom of Syria and, and Edom. And so we have this, this situation where um, there is, there's grave um, concern on the part of the king of Israel or king of, sorry, king of Judah. I, I was seeing it's confusing even, for me, even though I studied it, but you have the Kings of Israel with Jehoshaphat, which is wonderful. I grew up uh, hearing the phrase jump in Jehoshaphat. Um, so you have Je- King Jehoshaphat and then you have Judah and Edom. These three Kings come together and they unite, which is very unique because they've been at war for very long and for a very, very long time. And they unite against the Moabites and they, they, Jehoshaphat, who's evidenced faith throughout these scriptures here, Jehoshaphat says, let's come, let's go to the prophet. We have a prophet. Let's go ask him for help and ask for a blessing. And just to clarify, Jehoshaphat is from Judah. And yes. Jehoshaphat is one of the few in Judah at this time, because we have wicked and righteous kings. And he's seeking for unity with Israel, which is really quite beautiful. We'll literally see that again with Hezekiah and Josiah. Mm. But those three kings specifically stand out as trying to reunite Israel. So it's really kind of awesome that Jehoshaphat is like going to uh, the king of Israel to say, let's bond together. And he says, my people are as your people. In other words, Whatever, you know, we're going to bind, bind together in this battle. I'm with you. My people are as your people. My army is your army. Mm. And so they're, they're, it's, it's a hand held out in peace. Yeah, it's beautiful. And so there's, they, come to, they come to Elisha and they say, we want your blessing. And Elisha, at first, he's, I think he evidences some humor. He's like, why would, I, why would I do that with you guys? I'm here to, you know, break these things up. But what's interesting is... Um, they have a plan and they explain it to him. They say, Hey, we're going to actually go through the desert for, for several days, even though there's no water and we're going to come attack the Moabites through the desert. So that if you've ever seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, this is like the first Lawrence of Arabia move, right? <laughs> but they know they can't do it without the miraculous help of the Lord. And so they evidence their faith and Elisha actually, uh, his heart starts to soften. And it's interesting. The story highlights that he says, if you bring someone who will sing some music to me, then I'll, I'll perform a miracle here. Basically what happens is Elisha says, okay, if you want to evidence your faith, dig a bunch of trenches here in the desert. After you've crossed the desert, you're out of water, dig a bunch of trenches. I'll listen to this music. It'll solve my heart and the Lord will bring water. And the Lord does bring water. There's this miraculous, uh, there's some sacrifices made the water, the water comes and fills these trenches in the desert and it, it quenches the thirst of these armies. And incidentally, the Moabites who see this army descending and this coming to them, they, they're aware of it. And the water starts to evaporate uh, in, in the desert air, and it looks to the Moabites as if it's blood. And they believe that these three kingdoms, which historically have been enemies, have decided to fight each other and destroy each other. And they say, off to the spoil, let's go see how much destruction they brought amongst themselves and let's steal all their stuff. And as they go and attack this, this tri-kingdom, they get just decimated. The Moabites just get decimated by, uh, by these, these righteous followers of Elisha and the Lord. Well, the Moabites kind of run away because they think that the three Kings have been fighting with each other yeah. in the, and what looks like what's really the water and the sun is reflecting off of it in a particular way. And the earth itself is probably red, but the, the Moabites are convinced it's blood. It's blood. Yeah. 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 Whether it's a mirage or evaporation or something, but they, they see blood to, to your point about vision. Go ahead. Well, it's just so interesting in terms of how each of these people are perceiving what's happening. And again, um, the constant, um, 
teaching to me through these chapters is to have spiritual vision, to be able Mm -hmm. to see beyond the veil and Mm -hmm. see what's happening, what God is doing here. What's really nice here is that um, the king of Israel at this time is actually the son of Ahab. Ahab, the wicked king has died, and this is his son. And, and he put away all of the Baal idols. So it's, it's really kind of wonderful that Jehoshaphat has come up from Judah to sort of support this king. This is, by the way, the king, uh, one of the kings that um, uh, has some sort of hope that the, that Israel's fate can be turned around. Hmm. The only thing is that he still keeps the calves uh, at the north and south of the kingdom that they call Jehovah, that Jeroboam set up. But he's been trying to trying to take the people back to uh, the worship of Jehovah so that this alliance is is really a hopeful alliance at this time between Judah and Israel. And so it's kind of interesting that they're being shown again, the hand of the Lord, if they will turn to the Lord, how the Lord will assist them in what seems to be impossible battles. Yeah, I love it. And Elisha kind of shows up as a warrior prophet in many of these chapters where he's like, hey, let me lead you. Let me, let me, let me help you bring about these, these battles to victory. And um, the kings are willing to follow him. So after this miracle happens, then Elisha has a number of other miracles. And we'll just touch on uh, a couple of them. One is in 2 Kings 4, um, he has this woman who comes to him and says, I'm in debt. I'm, I'm one of the, the wives of the sons of the prophet, uh, the, the sons of the prophets. And um, my husband has died. And clearly Elisha, it, it appears to me that Elisha knows her. And she says, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm in debt. They're going to take my sons into bondage. You need to help me. And he says, well, what would you have me do? And then he, it, it appears that there's some revelation. And he says, take, what, what do you have? And she says, well, all I have is some oil. And he says, take the, go get as many oil containers as you can from your neighbors and then pour the oil into all those containers. And he blesses her and the oil multiplies just like the Lord multiplies the loaves and the fish. And then she takes the oil and sells the oil and has a lot left over and then buys her son's freedom. This, this, again, this example of Elisha saying, I know you've had experienced loss with your husband, or I know that there's been this plowing of the field. that has been painful, but I'm going to give you abundance in return. I'm going to, I'm going to turn the, this, this pain into, into blessing. This is kind of a common thing with Elisha that I see. And then we get to the next story in second Kings four, eight through 37, where there's this wonderful woman who makes room for the prophet. Do you want to tell us that story? Well, and I also just want to point out that here are two stories about women that show us that how much the Lord does love and is aware of women. So many people think that uh, women are left out of the scriptures, but both of these stories. So first of all, the widow that she's going, she's lost her husband. Then she's going to lose her two sons. The Lord is so aware of her and sends Elisha with this miracle. So much like the widow of Zarephath with, um, Mm. with Elijah. And then we have a Gentile woman, a Shunammite woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, she she recognizes, again, the spiritual eyes. She sees Elisha coming and going, and mm-hmm. she tells her husband, this is a man of God. We need to make a little room for him in our home so that when he's traveling and passing through, he has a place to rest. And so she has a little room, a little chamber built on to uh, her house for him. And she doesn't even ask him for a blessing. She's just trying to minister to someone she recognizes has this mantle of authority and who is a prophet. And then um, Elisha tells her, you know, ask what would you would like? 
And then um, she's been childless. She doesn't even ask him. He tells her a year from now, you're going to have a son. And she says, don't lie to me. You know, don't, don't, <laughs> it's basically, she's saying, don't get my hopes up. Don't, don't speak in the name of the Lord and then break my heart. Yeah. And um, in fact, she does have a son and all because the Lord is so aware of her. And oftentimes when we think we, again, the story of people who feel they're invisible or lost, And someone is sent to them in the name of the Lord, in this case, Elisha, to give this blessing to her because she has blessed out of an open heart, asking nothing in return, but Mm. to to offer a place of refuge to the prophet. And then she has something terrible happen to her son. Are we on to that part yet? Yeah, her her son is out in the field working and he gets, gets a, suffers some type of stroke or something, headache, and he, he dies and it's, it's devastating. And it's interesting because um, this is where you start to see Elisha and his servant, um, the interplay there. And um, Elisha sends his servant to go ask how things are and to check on the woman. And the servant shows up and he's like, hey, how's it going? And she's like, oh, everything's fine. And then when Elisha gets closer, she actually runs and falls at his feet weeping. And he can tell that something's wrong. And the servant's kind of mad at the woman. And Elisha's like, you can see the the compassion that Elisha has. He's like, no, something's clearly troubling her. And the Lord has hid it from me. I haven't been able to see it yet. And to your point on vision, I didn't realize this until we had been talking about this today, Linda, but I think that the, um, you know, even a prophet um, the, doesn't always see everything for a reason. What It's interesting. Elisha gives credit to the Lord that he's hiding it from him. And I think it's because there's something about us discovering things together in compassion that unites us. And that's what, ha- that's what happens here in my, uh, in my vision of what, what's this interplay between Elisha and this woman. He is able to see her in this weakness and he discovers it with her and has immediate compassion on her. And so he sends the servant. He says, hey, here's my staff. Go stick this staff on the boy and uh, revive it. Well, the servant who we later find out is probably not the most righteous servant. <laughs> Some weaknesses he's dealing with. He tries that and it doesn't work. It looks like it maybe helps, but it doesn't really work. So Elisha finally shows up and he lays on the boy and um, almost like a form of CPR, but spiritually empowered, quickened CPR and, uh, and puts his hands on the boy's hands and puts his face on the boy's face. And the boy revives miraculously. Now it's a pretty big sacrifice. You can, I'm sure Elisha was struggling, pleading with the Lord to make this miracle come true and that there's there's this uh, significant discomfort i'm sure on the part of elisha to go do this and lay there until the boy comes back but he comes back and he's restored and the woman takes takes the boy and rejoices in the lord what do you think about this story well i like your point about that it would be uncomfortable for elisha because there were teachings that you don't touch dead people right and you don't get within a certain um distance of a dead person right this is also comes up later than when Jesus is with another widow where her son is literally laying on the bed uh, that they're carrying him on out to the funeral and the savior touches that son and raises him up. And mm-hmm. so again, we, first of all, we see this foreshadowing of the work of the savior and that he sees each one, but then also Elisha is overcoming his own sort of recoiling from this idea that we don't touch anyone who's dead. We don't know how long he's been dead, but, you know, to lay on top of a dead person 
And you almost, like you said, you almost have this sense of a CPR kind of situation of a mouth to mouth, or at least a breath to breath and face to face kind of encounter. So Elisha's overcoming his own sort of um, challenges of how we might respond to that, to do what the Lord instructs him to do. But also it's this incredible mercy of the Lord and the foreshadowing that the Lord will raise from the dead and that he will restore and specifically that he will restore to the mothers and fathers that all of us on the other side, whether whether or not we certainly know people, I have friends and you have friends, I'm sure, whose children have been taken and have mm-hmm. not been brought back to life. But this, again, is a spiritual vision of the future that while this particular woman has her child brought back in the temporal world, all of us are promised we will have our children again on the other side. And we can have hope and belief in that, that through Jesus Christ, we will be together again as families and our children will be brought to us. Oh, yes. Uh, it's, and just, just the overwhelming emotion that the, the, this mother must have felt to have her heart broken and not having children, then to have her heart broken in joy that she has a child and then to have it broken again. <laughs> you know, I had this experience once with my, with my daughter She's, she's now no longer a daughter, <laughs> no longer a young, a young girl, but when she was uh, four, she was in the driveway and a vehicle um, drove over her. And it was so heartbreaking because we, I heard it happen outside and I heard the driver um, say, Oh, Alina, I didn't see you. And all of a sudden he came running in, holding this, uh, holding her. And she was just screaming and miraculously, she had just been bumped on the head. The, the, the tires went right over her, and she she wasn't touched by the tires. The, just the rear differential in the truck just hit her head. And it was such a miracle, Linda. Like, I, you just fall down. As a parent, you just fall down and weep in gratitude that, that, that there's that mercy extended. And I agree with you. It, it's not, it doesn't work that way usually. I mean, I've heard so many horror stories of children getting run over by vehicles. Um, every year, it's just a terrible, terrible thing that happens. And now there's new safety measures and things, but the heart, the heartbreaking nature of this is so raw when you realize that love and that yet the Lord is going to restore, he's going to bring back. He's again, he's going to take that pain and he's going to give you more than you ever thought you could enjoy if you're willing to follow him. And so I love this story. I agree with you. It's such a beautiful story. And it shows the love that the Lord has of women and of Gentiles and of everybody on the planet. He's trying to bless everybody. So we end up having this exchange of another experience where after making um, room for the Lord, there's all, then there, there starts to become a famine in the land. And um, he's with the school of the prophets again. And he ends up saying, Hey, let's have some food. And this, some servants go and gather some gourds that are poisonous. They put them in the soup, try to feed everybody. Everybody's like, ah, I don't eat it. You're going to die. And then Elisha ends up miraculously purifying the food. So I think, one of the reasons I think all these miracles are here is because it's showing us that we don't, that the Lord has control over matter, not just spirit, but he has control over everything temporal on this planet. He can make anything happen that he needs to make happen to bring about his miracles and protect his servants. And then again, we get this, and this includes even our temporal matter, our bodies. We get this experience with Naaman and Naaman is a story that so many people like to, to discuss. And there's been wonderful talks given about this. I guess we, we can touch just lightly on, on Naaman and the miracles here. Do you want to tell us that story a little bit? Well, Naaman is, uh, he holds a great status in the army of Syria. So mm-hmm. Syria is conquering Israel and uh, they go back and forth between being in alliance and being at war with one another. 
And Naaman is one of the, the chief captains in that army. And in fact, it's implied that he was part of conquering Israel to a certain degree because he has a little a little Jewish slave in his mm-hmm. in his care. And uh, she says, oh, uh, my Lord Naaman has leprosy. And if only he could see the prophet who is in Israel. And she says that to her mistress, who is Naaman's wife. And at first the thought is, are you kidding me? You know, these are the people we're conquering and they're so low compared to us. But but the king of uh, Syria has such a regard for Naaman that he sends a letter to the king of Israel and says, we've heard that your prophet could cure him. And, you know, my captain has leprosy and the king of Israel is horrified. Because he doesn't feel like, first of all, he doesn't feel like Elisha is his friend. And he doesn't feel like he doesn't feel like Elisha is going to do anything good to help him. But he also probably doesn't believe at all in Elisha's power as well. Mm -hmm. And so to him, it's a trap because they have these moments of alliance between Syria and Israel when Syria quits attacking Israel. And this is one of those times And the king of Israel probably thinks, I am now completely entrapped because I don't think Elisha can heal Naaman and we're going to get another attack, another full on attack. And then um, the most interesting thing is that uh, Naaman, I suppose, in his desperation goes to see Elisha and Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. So imagine here's the captain of these armies of tremendous power and we can't help but think but wealth as well and elisha is at this point really humble living in a probably a you know little poverty type of a dwelling he won't even come out of his house and pay honor to this conquering hero and so naaman is really offended um why don't you take up the story from that well, I, yeah, he is offended, and you know, there's some there's some great church videos about this that um, show show this story, and and um, Naaman's offended, and Elisha sends his servant out, and the servant says, "Yeah, all you have to go do is go bathe seven times in the River Jordan." And it, I forgot to mention on the last miracle with the with the um, the boy, by the way, he sneezes seven times when he's revived. Here, Naaman has to bat, you know, be bathed seven times the river Jordan, this number of seven, I, we've talked about it before. It's all over the place. <laughs> it's a symbol of this idea of perfection or, you know, uniting heaven and earth design and all this kind of stuff. So Naaman hears that. And he's like, I thought you'd come out and lay your hand upon me and miraculously heal me. And he has to humble himself. The ser- his servants talk him into bathing in the river Jordan, which is a filthy river, according to him. And there's better rivers over in, in Syria, but he humbles himself. And it, which is a great example of, we just got to do what the Lord wants us to do. We just got to follow uh, the way the Lord wants us to, to follow. And he's cured of his leprosy. Now <clears throat> that story, we could spend a lot of time on that. And there's a lot of wonderful commentators who, who discuss that. I think it's valuable to discuss the bookends. Like we've been talking about the, 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 the sides of uh, the, the crust of bread on the outside of the center. And one of them here is what happens afterwards. And the servant of, of Elisha, you know, Naaman leaves the servant of Elisha um, turns away money at the command of Elisha because Naaman tried, he brought all this clothing, all these vestitures, all this talents of silver. And a talent of silver is a big bag of silver. It's a lot of money. And Elisha turns it all away. Well, his, his servant, the same servant who took the staff to try and heal the boy, the same servant who we end up reading about later on, 
his servant is wants some money and he wants some of this comfort that he's missing. And so he actually hops in his, he sneaks away from Elisha, hops in um, into a boat of transportation like a chariot and zips off after Naaman and says, hey, some of the sons of the prophets just came back down the mountain and Elisha changed his mind. He wants some of the money and he wants some of the clothes. And Naaman's like, sure thing, no problem. And he gives it to him. And then the servant comes back and Elisha catches him and says, where did you go? And he's like, I didn't go anywhere. And then Elisha says, oh, you accepted payment when it was not time to accept payment. And so now the, the leprosy of, of Naaman is now on you and all of your posterity, um, which apparently the, the man had some posterity. And we end up learning about him later as we get into some of the other chapters. I can't help but think that the war that subsequently comes with Syria and Elisha, the next story wouldn't have happened if that servant wouldn't have accepted payment. It's almost as if him accepting payment allowed the king of Syria to excuse the debt of gratitude that he owed to Elisha or to make it difficult for the king of Syria to be able to have faith in the God of Israel. Because what happens next is this wonderful story about how um, the, the, those that are on the Lord's side have more than those that are not on the Lord's side. And we fast forward a little bit and the king of Syria starts to try and attack Israel again. and starts to try and um, take over some of the land, probably because he felt like he didn't owe a debt of gratitude to Elijah for, for healing his, his servant Naaman. And so we can thank this, this servant for screwing up, <laughs> for making some of these problems. But, um, and Elisha comes to the, to the king and says, hey, I have seen in vision that the king of Syria is going to attack here and here and here. You shouldn't be there. Go remove yourself and find a place of safety. So he's protecting the king. And the king of Syria hears about this and he says, what's going on? Do we have somebody who's a spy in our camp? Because I am giving war directions and this king keeps removing himself as if he's being forewarned by a spy. And his servants say to him, it's, it's wonderful storytelling. His servants say to him, no, you're, you're giving directions in your bedchamber. There's nobody who's hearing it except for a few of your most trusted servants. It's, this isn't because of that, that, that we have a spy. This is because Elisha is a prophet who healed Naaman and he's forewarning where the armies are going to attack. Uh, this the, the, what happens next is one of my favorite stories in, in all of the Old Testament. Do you want to talk about it a little bit? Sure. I also do want to just for a minute talk about this whole idea of payment and um, oh, please. Yes. how Naaman might have uh, viewed what a prophet should be because in their land and actually in many areas of Israel as well, those priests were amongst the wealthiest people. We might think mm. of King, King Noah in the book of Mormon and his wicked priests, but Mm -hmm. priests did grand pageantry sorts of things and called upon enchantments. You think about uh, Elijah with the contest with the priests of Baal to get an idea of what a priest or a prophet would have seemed like to Naaman or the King of Syria, or even the King of Israel. And so that Elisha is living in this little hut, won't come out, won't take payment. That was a testimony That was supposed to be a witness to Naaman and to Syria and to the king of Israel about what a real prophet would act like. Nephi talks a lot about priestcraft and that there should not be anything done in the name of the Lord for money. And Mm -hmm. so what could have been such an important teaching tool and a testimony 
uh, to Naaman and to the others now is corrupted because of what Gehazi does. And mm-hmm. I think actually that it's probably a different servant in this story because Gehazi does have leprosy, which means he has to be an outcast. Mm-hmm. But but so oh, it's El- definitely a different servant. I agree with yeah. you on that. Yeah. So, it, so Elisha now has being accused of knowing and protecting Israel from all the movements of Syria. And so all of the armies of Syria come against Elisha. And we just, again, picture him in this little sort of pauper's hut in the middle of a valley. And it's really unprotected. It's, it's out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. And all of the armies of Syria now come and surround Elisha's home because they're determined they're going to get rid of Elisha so that they can win the war against Israel. And that servant of Elisha is terrified Mm-hmm. And when he sees all these armies and chariots and Elisha prays that his servant's eyes can be opened. And here again, we have the ultimate in the spiritual vision, because when the veil is taken away from the servant's eyes, he sees the entire valley is surrounded by the chariots and the army and the angels of God, all, mm-hmm. all filled with light. And Elisha says, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And to me, this is the highlight and the crux of the whole story of Elisha and mm-hmm. his mission and our mission on earth and the, the ability to have that spiritual vision of seeing both sides of, of the veil, so to speak. I have friends who I greatly admire. I've not had this experience myself, but I have friends who specifically when they're going to the temple to do um, temple work for those who have passed on that they are able to see and have conversations with those ancestors they're doing that work for. And I think that this is a really powerful message for all of us. You indicated at the very, very beginning of our conversation here is that we can pray to see, we can pray to see the Lord would like us to see. And only recently in the last few years have I been praying that prayer that I might be aware of my ancestors on the other side of the veil. In some ways, I'm an orphan in the church and, you know, the first member and so on and so forth. And uh, I have had some very special experiences. I have not seen them, but I have felt them and I have known that they were there. And I think it's really important for us to have that veil removed and understand how many, how many are for us that are keenly interested in our welfare and are working in behalf of the Lord to bless us and to help to guide and lead us in our lives so that we are not alone. Again, we go back to that very beginning feeling that Elijah had. And to me, this is the great message of the, of these stories. We're not alone. Mm -hmm. Um, God is with us and he is surrounding us with angels. Well, the funny, the funny thing here is that, um, that Elisha strikes the army with blindness, blindness yeah. talking again about spiritual vision, vision. then yeah. what happens? Well, he's, and then, and then he ends up leading the army away and hands the army off to the Israelites. And, and you can see the immaturity, the spiritual maturity of, of the Israelites. And they, they say, Hey, can we kill them? And Elisha's <laughs> like, why w- would you kill your prisoners? No, feed them and send them home. Again, showing mercy and trying to bring about the Lord's uh, tenderness and, and love and unity in this area. And it's it, when you have that level of vision, I think it does give you that level of confidence that you're not you're not afraid. You're not trying to take advantage. You're not reacting. And when this idea that this command with, of Elijah to his new servant, who is new prophet and training of fear not, 
they either be with us or more than they would be with them. I think that that evidence is this, um, this maturity of Elisha as well. Like he's starting to just trust that he's surrounded by all these, all these people who care, all these chariots of fire and angels of fire. And there's a great quote by, um, by Jeffrey R. Holland, elder Jeffrey R. Holland, where he says in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have help from both sides of the veil and you must never forget that when disappointment and discouragement strike and they will, you remember and never forget that if our eyes could be opened, we would see horses and chariots of fire as far as the eye can see riding at reckless speed to come to our protection. They will always be there. The armies of heaven in defense of Abraham's seed End quote. In those moments of desperation, when everything is literally designed to come kill you, <laughs> like with Elijah, this entire army focused on just removing this one man. That's when the, the, these miracles are manifest. That's when we can see that that in that great moment of need. And to, to your point about the ancestors, Linda, I I often think that um, life is is in many respects a stage, and we're living out our days, and we're in Act Two of a three act play. Act one being the pre-mortal existence. And there's some great talks by some apostles about this. And act three being the post-mortal existence when we're back up in heaven. But the audience to this stage is our family. It's all these angels who are uh, watching us from the other side of the veil and are anxiously engaged. Their hearts yearn for us. They're cheering us on when we succeed. And they're they're working anxiously and vigorously to help us uh, stay afloat when we're being attacked and when we're drowning. And I believe that when we step off the stage and we enter act three, <laughs> we'll get down into the audience and we'll look around and we'll see so many familiar faces and we'll recognize that they look a lot like us because they're all related to us. <laughs> this host of, of angelic family that is working out their salvation and our salvation together, the hearts of the fathers and the hearts of the children being turned together. And, and so no wonder Elisha would say to this king, don't, don't destroy these people. They're precious. They have angels on the other side who are working for them too. They have, they're connected to the, to the fabric of heaven, just like you are. And Elisha can see who they were before and who they are now and who their potential is in Christ. And that Christ is working out his salvation for all of us as, as meticulously and lovingly as he possibly can as a God, right? He's doing everything he can. So I agree with you. I love this story. And, and I love that he, Elisha points out that we should know our enemies. Our enemies aren't, those that we feel are attacking us, we're all on the same team. All of us are on the same team trying to find a way back home. And I want to encourage our listeners to actually pray and ask the Lord to help them to identify those who are on the other side, to help them to have an understanding. Yes. If Whether it's like me, I still have not seen anybody, um, or, but I have literally over the last few years come to have some names given to me to recognize that there are those that are there. And I, and also then I express a tremendous amount of gratitude to the Lord for allowing me to understand that, but also I express gratitude to them. And, you know, one day when we're on the other side and you kind of hinted at this, well, we will also be filling that same role. And, you know, I just, you know, I just want everyone to have that sense and that feeling that we're not alone. We are connected and that God has given his angels charge over every single one of us. And that even though we might feel alone at times, he is there and there are ministers there to us. Going back to Elijah, one of my favorite parts of that story, when he goes back to um, Mount Sinai, 
is that Elijah is so discouraged. And he said, no, no one's believed me. We just had this tremendous miracle with the priests of Baal. Jezebel still is out to kill me. And um, my life is worth nothing. And Elijah goes to sleep and an angel brings him food twice, twice. And the second time the angel says to Elijah, basically eat and sleep because this journey is too much for you. So in other words, the Lord is so keenly, keenly aware of us that even as the the ravens fed Elijah or this angel comes to Elijah and recognizes and acknowledges you've been through some really hard times, Mm -hmm. but God is here and will comfort us. And he sends his messengers to us. And I just pray that we can have our eyes open, our spiritual eyes open and our hearts open so that we can feel and see that. Amen. I love that. That's the invitation. We can all join in the dance. We can all see that the Lord is working out his, his wonders and sending, sending uh, those that love us and that we love to sustain us and help us. Angels on both sides of the veil, empowered with that, with that holy fire, that light and that truth and that love. And I just want, I just want to echo what you just said, Linda. I want to testify that I know that angels minister. I felt it in my own life, protecting, sustaining, nourishing, loving, healing wings all around us. If we're just willing to open our eyes and, and see what the Lord is trying to do. There's a beautiful quote, and I think it's a, this is a, a great way to end this uh, by, <clears throat> um, so I was, as I was preparing this lesson, it, it struck me. Um, and this is, this is an Elizabeth Barrett Browning quote. And she says, earth, earth's crammed with heaven. All, all these people that are anxiously engaged in our lives, right? Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God. And only he who sees takes off his shoes. Mm-hmm. As we let go of the things that distract us, the things that we get trapped in, if we, as we let go of them, we'll be able to see the earth is crammed with heaven and that we have an opportunity to receive it here below and, and join in this dance and, and see that the Lord prevail in our lives. And I'm so grateful for this chance to talk about this with you today. And uh, I love the spirit that I felt. And I hope people that have listened have felt it as well and uh, that they felt pointed to Christ and that they're able to come closer to him. Thank you so much, Sam. I really appreciated hearing your testimony today. Thank you.